he says there's a, a biopsy here to see from the professor of pathology in new york on a very well-to-do vip of his rectum and there's the letter so it said dear basil please look at this it's very unusual but i think this is carcinoma so he showed it to me and he says what do you think of it and uh, i said it's not carcinoma it's squamous metaplasia which is where the, the glandular tissue becomes squamous tissue and it looks very like cancer he says are you he says going to disagree with the professor of pathology in new york i said i sure am he says <laughs> he says he won't like it he says but i like it and i'm sure the patient will like it <laughs> because <laughs> i was right welcome to the fat emperor podcast i'm your host ivor cummins we're supported by the irish heart disease awareness charity which advocates a simple ct scan to reveal your cac score so know your score and take action to prevent that premature heart attack everything you need to know will be right here Okay, today we have the best of Irish. We have Dr. Garodo Lee, well known on Twitter and on other formats. And he's a histopathologist, a consultant with massive expertise in autopsy and in histopathology. Delighted to meet you, Garod, again. Uh, delighted to meet you, Ivor, as we've met several times before. Absolutely, yeah. I think in Iceland and in a few other far-flung places. Yeah, yeah, Cork even in Dublin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Crazy places like that. Well, you know what I thought I'd start off with? We usually start off talking about low carbon weight loss, and we're going to touch on that later. But one thing that occurred to me uh, lately, and it's occurred to me many times, and it drives me crazy, is bias in science and in research. And the way the humans have this confirmation bias and focus on what fulfills their beliefs, rather than being um, excruciatingly honest and just looking at the data and accepting when it doesn't tell them what they want to see. And you had a few great stories from your pathology days. We had an experience some years ago where a particular new marker was being assessed uh, on a particular tumor to suggest its prognosis etc etc and when we started doing it we were getting a positive rate of 14 percent and other places rapidly began to report 25 percent and all the literature said 25 percent this is positive in about 25 percent of cases so we discovered when um, getting our brains together with other Irish hospitals that there was one other hospital who was getting 14% and all of them were reporting 25%. I went to meetings in England and 25% was what you did. And if you weren't getting 25%, you could go to special courses which would raise your reporting rate to 25%. So we were left with this uh, conundrum. Is it 14% or is it 25%? What we did first is we got one of our technicians to do 100 cases which had previously been reported as negative to see if any of them were positive and they were to, um, to a complete extent all negative. So then we discussed this myself and my two colleagues, what are we going to do? And we said, we've only one thing that we can do, we'll have to report what we find, we can't be making stuff up. So. Three years later, I was at a meeting and an American who was an expert in this particular area said that in this particular case, the correct number of positives was 14%. So I stuck my hand up and I said, come here a minute now, mister. I said, well, something to that extent. How do you explain that the literature has said 
since the word go that the correct numbers of positives was 25%, which everybody, or well, mostly people began to report at 25%. Uh, and it's now 14%, which we were reporting from the word go. Oh, he says that's easy. He says there was an initial misinterpretation of a seminal paper in this field uh, where it said that 25% of cases were positive, but these were all uh, not general run-of-the-mill cases, they were bad cases which had had recurrence, etc. And that's the explanation. So sometimes you have to go against the grain, you have to call the shot as you see it and not as everybody else thinks it should be. And this mentality is so essential in science. Absolutely, Garod. And I, well, from my own career and my own experience, it's the same thing. A huge amount of engineers have this bias where they expect that factor X is causing the problem and they go and root out data to support the fact that it's X and it gets reported and the bias is endemic many, many times. And I found myself that there's a temptation even for me with my experience to actually, if I get data that conflicts with my belief and my belief is very strong, I have this instinctive desire to not dig too deep into that data. It's, a, it's an instinctive human thing. Now, of course, I have to overcome that and specifically go into that negative data that conflicts with my belief even more than the data that supports. Um, it's crucial, but it's not that common in research to see that behavior. But you have to do that because mm. you may find that in a particular circumstance, this data is so, but in other circumstances, it isn't. And that can explain why you get paradoxes, like in particular... Uh, peoples in the world, they can have a very high ApoB, uh, ApoB level in their blood, which would suggest a high risk of um, coronary artery disease, and yet they don't get it. So you have to explain why this is so and what's overriding it. And this is the way we have to think. Yeah, I think it was Karl Popper, the uh, philosopher, spoke about the scientific method at length. And he was saying there's an asymmetry of evidence that you can have 10 or 20 pieces of positive confirmatory evidence for your theory. Uh, but one piece of conflicting evidence carries complete power over all of the positive. And this this is so important in engineering. But again, in research, we, we don't see that. We see avoiding uh, creating paradoxes. Actually, you have a few more paradoxes yeah. we've talked about. So what one should do is when you have a paradox and there's a piece of data that says your hypothesis is wrong, instantaneously, if that data is credible and you're happy it's real, obviously not if it's bullshit data, but if it's real, you at that moment have to destroy your hypothesis just briefly and find out how do I re rewrite my hypothesis to accommodate this data. It doesn't mean the hypothesis is, is destroyed forever. You may have to say, this applies except when this factor is present, but you have a new hypothesis, but that, that doesn't happen. The paradoxes are just used to keep your hypothesis and dismiss the... Exactly. Yeah. There's a phenomenon too, which you can, uh, it's analogous to people having been to the moon and having sampled moon rock and having photographed the place and done all kinds of scientific measurements coming back to earth and uh, they, they become uncomfortable. Some of them become uncomfortable with these facts. So they start looking at the moon with a 20 pound um, pair of binoculars and see what they can find from that. And they draw scientific conclusions from that. 
This is equivalent to very weak observational associational epidemiology uh, being allowed to supersede really rigorous, huge uh, randomized controlled trials, like, for instance, the WHI initiative, which was a trial of 57,000 women carried out for eight years at a cost of $700 million, which showed pretty conclusively that lowering the saturated fat in the diet had no um, benefit in its outcome, that eating extra whole grains and fiber and fruit uh, likewise had no positive effect. But you go ahead and you do associations and said, look, these five a day um, is showing up and this, but this is meaningless stuff. It's it's just mean. It's rubbish. Essentially, and that that's actually a great way of putting it. You've got associations. You make a hypothesis. You then do the gold standard of an RCT, right, to really find out if the hypothesis is true. The gold standard experiment, which can prove cause, says no. And then you actually slink back to your yes. epidemiology weak data and say, look, we want to believe this anyway. Yeah, that's right. This is what's happening all the time. Uh, the experts at this are Harvard. The Harvard's uh, the, the something Chan School, isn't it? Or the Harvard School of Public Health, but yeah. they may have other names. This Chan is involved there somewhere. Oh, Chan, the guy, and I suppose Walter Willett. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they they love epidemiology. What I hate about epidemiology is, well, A, it's hypothesis forming. Yeah. So you see a correlation. In engineering, we use Kepner-Trago, which is a much more rigorous method for looking at apparent correlations and distinctions and potential hypothesis, but it's very potential. So you use this epidemiology study, you see a kind of a relationship. But for me, with the human studies in epidemiology, it's the healthy user bias, which really destroys them. Yeah. So you have people who eat more saturated fat, let's say, and they tend to have some more heart disease. But when you look closer, the group that were eating more saturated fat also have more smokers. They have lower exercise level. They don't exercise at all, I would say. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah. In general, probably yeah. not. But, but the killer is that you can never correct for the confounding that people who ignore all of the official advice on health and go ahead and eat whatever they want are hugely different people. And what they eat may have nothing to do with it. It's the fact they have much less health focus. And then you get the result you want through healthy user bias. And it's completely false science. There's an example of where something was done properly, believe it or not, by Loma Linda. Oh, 1975, Hmm. they had this hypothesis that um, a vegan diet protected against bowel cancer, GI cancers in particular. So what they did, they did a proper... Uh, epidemiological study they got vegan doctors and I think they followed them up for seven years matched to non-vegan doctors because they reckon doctors are pretty equal to doctors as regards social class and general behavior and they discovered that they actually had slightly more GI cancers all GI cancers than uh, the doctors who ate a normal diet so and that was that was probably one of the better ways you can correct for healthy yeah. user bias. They did the right thing. But they're the oh, they're actually the vegan or vegetarian organization. Yeah, Loma Linda is, univer- oh, yeah. is the vegan university. Wow. And um, how do I wonder how they when we speak about bias, I wonder how they felt when the data began to come through. Well, they didn't like it, but they did publish it. <laughs> well, 
big shout out there to uh, yeah. Loma Linda for, for doing the right well, thing. Another thing that's not widely known, but I've seen a quotation of this. A professor in Loma Linda years ago, a physician, said that he had never seen uh, a vegetarian reach the age of 100. Right. A vegetarian Seventh-day Adventist. But the chaps who ate fish, etc., did. Yeah, and that's probably a nutrition thing, that you can make a healthy vegetarian diet, but the nutrient density is probably a challenge for the really long haul. And also, mm. in Okinawa, the Japanese remarked that they hadn't seen any vegetarians in Okinawa reach 100. I think in that one, if I recall correctly, there, though there were quite a few non-vegetarians who, who do go over oh, the, the 100. Many of lot. them do, many of them do, yeah. 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 So if you look at the entirety of the data and you're conscious of these uh, biases and confounding, you could come to a reasonable conclusion on a lot of these questions. But I guess the conclusions you would come to are, are not popular because we've had many decades of, of orthodox dogma that yeah. reversing that now is catastrophically bad for reputations and kind of everything. And for bank balances. Follow the money, honey. <laughs> Well, money is a big part of it, yes, of course, yeah. yeah. And I guess there's so much collusion. Well, that's a strong word, collusion. But there's so much interaction between the food industry and the guidelines. And, you know, it's 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 a wicked web at this yeah. stage. Uh, there's no doubt about it. So a couple of other interesting ones. Paradoxes. We are just talking about yeah. paradoxes. So the Hong Kong one, I think, you particularly yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. I kind of came across this about... I, I think I was the first person to come across it. I came across... The um, info that Hong Kong consumes more meat and more beef than anywhere in the world. Now, people argue about that, but if it doesn't c consume more, it's pretty well up there. And I've been in Hong Kong. I spent five days there about two years ago, and I never saw so much meat in my life. If you ask for a plate of French beans in Hong Kong, there's beef mince mixed in with the, fr the French beans. There is meat everywhere. And these people are outliving the Japanese and the Koreans. And they're living in a very polluted environment. Um, and they're still managing to outlive the Koreans and the Japanese, eating all this meat. Yeah, and that is interesting that they do have the pollution. And there's quite a lot of data has emerged around pollution being a driver of, of even atherosclerosis, not yeah. just uh, you know breathing difficulties or asthma. So they have a lot of uh, chips set against them, and yet they're they're overcoming those chips, living really long, and, and yet eating a very high quantity of meat. Uh, the French paradox is another one. Yeah, this is my <laughs> favourite because I've been there. I went cycl I, I've, I cycled once through the uh, Dordogne area. The French call it uh, Le Périgord, or it's known as Gascony as well. Gascony is a bigger area than Le Périgord. And I went cycling there for about 10 days with my wife once, exclusively in that area, and we got pure sick of eating pate, magret de canard, and confit de canard. That's what you could have. That's what they eat. They eat loads of cheese, loads of butter. Now, statistically, France, together with Japan, has the lowest incidence of heart disease in the world. But that area of Le Perigord has half the incidence of the rest of France. And they are the highest consumers of uh, any size of an area in the world of saturated fat. They eat 18%, same as the Catavans do. And um, they're not getting heart disease from it. Their, their incidence of heart disease is a quarter that, for instance, of uh, Scotland. 
Right, and I saw, I think it was Malcolm Kendrick's article yeah. about that, a quarter of the incident with much higher saturated fat. Yeah. Uh, and this is the fascinating thing. These things are called paradoxes and then quietly pushed aside. I think the yeah. French, what's been used is the wine, and uh, that's probably the main one. Unproven. Oh, absolutely, yeah, I agree. Un- unproven I- that the wine is, uh, is sparing them. And the French have, have been cutting down their uh, wine consumption quite considerably. And their heart disease rate isn't rising. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So the wine, I think we have enough studies on wine that show tentative benefits, yeah. but nowhere near the 4 to 6x that you're talking about. Yeah. So the wine is an order of magnitude, even if true, yeah. is an order of magnitude smaller than what could ever explain the paradox. But interestingly, the people who need that paradox to allow them to continue their belief system are happy to use it regardless of what I just said. Yeah, I have a, th- I have a theory about it. Mm. My theory is that saturated fat doesn't matter plus or minus, but that one of the reasons that the French have such a low incidence of heart disease is they're very chilled out over eating and they'll spend two hours at their lunch. So they get a good um, period of relaxation every day. And that has to be one of the, uh, the main drivers. If you watch Americans eat, it's actually a feeding frenzy. It's like it's like uh, the great white shark attacking seals of South Africa. <laughs> Whereas oh, well. the French, the Frenchman is like a gorilla picking up the odd grape while he's eating. And that's the difference. Yeah, there are huge cultural differences yeah. for sure. Now, on behalf of the Americans, in fairness, not all, <laughs> but there's a general trend yeah, there yeah, towards yeah. that. And the modern life as well uh, probably started earlier in America, maybe than in Europe of the fast life, you yeah. know, the busy job, multiple jobs, grabbing food, the industrialized food supply yeah. in America started earlier than anywhere else. But now we're we're well catching up. Um, but yeah, these, these paradoxes, I don't know if there's any more before we move on to another topic. I think there was an Israeli one. Yeah. Was that around omega six? Yeah, Israelis have a high, a high consumption of omega six. And I think their heart disease rate is a little higher than they expect it should be. One of the the best stories, which has been kind of lost to medical history, you seldom see uh, references to it now, but we were well schooled in it by our professor of social medicine, who was Professor John Corridon, who did not buy the lipid hypothesis at all. And he was an epidemiologist by training, was the Yemeni Jews by Aharon Cohen, uh, published, I think, 1967, around then in The Lancet, two or three papers. And the upshot of it was that there was an early migration to to Israel around the time of the foundation of the state by a population of Yemeni Jews. And these Yemeni Jews settled in Israel. And something like 20 years later, there was a second influx of the rest of them from Yemen. And Aharon Cohen and his fan or his um, team examined the two populations and compared them. And they discovered that the people who'd been 20 years in Israel had a 40 times incidence of diabetes type 2 at the same age as the new influx from uh, Yemen. This was a huge, huge factor. And when they looked into the diet, the only thing that they could come to was that sugar was very expensive in Yemen. So their consumption of sugar was very low. Uh, but they had a lot more fat in Yemen than they did in Israel. So he was one of the first people to really cement uh, in his evidence the uh, case against sugar. And, of course, people conven- conveniently forgot about it then. And um, But it's very interesting to read the papers. I've read them. 
Right, and that's epidemiology when you get, I think, as per the standards of Bradford Hill, yeah. if you're two times or more incidents, yeah. you can begin to think there yeah. may be causal. So obviously there's a huge factor there. It reminds me actually of uh, Reven's uh, study in 2002, not a sugar study, but uh, it was one of the most impressive hazard ratios or risk multipliers I've ever seen. And he used steady state plasma glucose, which is like an insulin clamp test, so really accurate. And the lowest third had zero disease or death seven years later. The middle third had 12, 10 disease and two deaths. And the upper third of insulin resistance had 28 with four deaths. And the statistics were P00 out the wazoo, right? Yeah. Incredibly powerful. I've read the paper. It was fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. But the risk uh, multiplier or hazard ratio for being high in the steady state plasma glucose was around 40 times. You, know, it's interesting. you mentioned yeah, yeah. 40x. And in the same study, they happened to measure LDL and he had the decency to give the hazard ratio. Yeah. So LDL for being high was a 1.001x multiplier. In other yeah. words, there useless. was zero effect. Yeah, useless. That said, I think the saturated fat thing, and it's interesting, um, there's a question mark around, say, APOE4 people yeah. who are 17% of the population. You can get the test, genetic test with 23andMe very cheaply. That APOE4 people who have sustained damage from modern foods and are diabetic and have big heart disease, there's data out there that they may have some sensitivity to animal protein fat combo in excess. So that's probably, for me, it's kind of the exception that might prove the rule. Yeah. That free living humans, not metabolically damaged, there's no problem. But there might be a subset for, peop for people to maybe just, just keep an eye on their bloods and that if they change their diet a lot and do something outlandish. Yeah, I would agree mm. with that. I mean, mm. we're not all genetically the same. I mean, mm. if you look at, um, in my park growing up, there, I suppose there were 25 families. My father was the only fat man in the park. Uh, and he had been a great athlete and footballer when he was young, but all his family were fat when nobody was fat. And when I was 23, I developed this stomach out of nowhere and I wasn't that much overweight, maybe half a stone. I had a stomach on me. So I had his genes. So we're different. We're insulin resistant to some extent. One of his brothers died of diabetes type 2, died in about 1967 at the age of 67. And his mother died before World War II of type 2 diabetes uh, I don't know what age she was but she wasn't that old um, so and you you carry that weight through most of your adult life I, I did so maybe if, if we hit on your story in brief of this yeah. phenomena and your discovery four years ago well there are two two or three things that I, I uh, worked out uh, I, I believe you can do a lot of experimentation on yourself if you can reproduce it and I got very keen on cycling when I was about 30. Now, I'd cycled all my life, but I got very keen on it as a form of exercise. And I began to cycle about 7,000 miles a year or more, which is quite a lot. I discovered that, and I was inclined to, to um, settle at a weight of 15 stone 12, which is for Americans, 100 kilograms exactly. I was 100, I'm six feet two. So my BMI was about 28.5 at that weight. I discovered that cycling 100 miles a week had no effect whatsoever on my weight, eating the diet that I was eating at the time. I also discovered that if I cycled 200 miles a week, which is about 12 hours cycling or more, uh, 
that I would lose two pounds that week. So if I wanted to go on a bike tour, I would maybe spend two months doing 200 miles a week or more, and I would be quite light going to the mountains and the Alps. But when I came home and reduced uh, the cycling weight, it would all go back on. This happened time without number. I once went on a diet at about the age of 28, uh, and I lost 42 pounds just by cutting down the number of calories. Every every waking minute, was I was consumed with thoughts of food. Uh, and you can't beat that. Uh, the brain will just... What the brain does is it blanks out the fact that you were ever on a diet and you just go back to eating the way you were. And I did it all back on within one year. So I tried all kinds of things. I tried a high fiber diet. Believe me, it doesn't work. I ate all whole grains. I ate nothing that wasn't whole grain. Whole grain bread, whole grain uh, rice. Um, everything was whole grain. No effect on my weight whatsoever. Um, at one stage, I was involved in an accident where I was hit uh, off my bike and I um, couldn't drive because I had, um, uh, had an operation in my hand. I couldn't cycle. So I was walking a big, big amount. I was walking 50 to 60 miles a week, including walking up to the orthopedic hospital in Cork, which is a very severe hill. It's about a 20 percent hill, two or three days a week. And I was walking this distance and I lost exactly zero grams on this 14 weeks. So uh, exercise will knock weight off you, but just in super normal amounts, and it's not practical. I established that beyond doubt. Then uh, I came across something on the internet where you sent this chap 50 quid and he'd give you the secret of losing weight. So I did, and his secret of losing weight was giving up sugar and uh, doing some weightlifting. Now, I, I hate weightlifting, so I decided I'd give up sugar. I'd spent the 50 quid. I gave up sugar, and I lost 20 pounds in 20 weeks, but I was hungry. And 18 months later, I started a slow regain, so I said, this isn't working, because uh, I, was, I was really hungry. And I'd come across, uh, I had read um, John Yodkin's book, Pure White and Deadly, about the dangers of sugar. I thought it was a fantastic book. It was one of the best books I've read uh, scientifically. And I'd come across Tim Noakes's um, lectures on the web, and I said, I'll give this a go. But I didn't give it a go for about two weeks. I kind of read everything I could about it. I realized that if you went on it, it's not going to work long term unless you stay on it. So January the 1st, 2014, I went on it, and at the time I was um, uh, about 12 pounds down on my original weight, which, which was mid-2012. So I lost 28 pounds in about five months, and I've kept it off for four and a half years. And um, I've kept it off no trouble. And now, there was a particular chap uh, on the web, one of these gurus who knows everything, but actually doesn't really know anything. and. He, he was poo-hooing the fact that I said that this is a very satisfying diet and that's how it works. And he, I told him, look, I eat as much as I want. Uh, all I do is I watch the, the amount of carb I eat and my weight is off for four and a half years. And he told me I was hilarious. This, this was his, uh, it's the truth. All the people who put the weight back on, I reckon, are fooling themselves. They're eating more carbs than they think they are. And I have a very rigid approach to my diet. Uh, the, the, the approach is 
Um, there is nothing as powerful as habit. So I don't break the habit. I will very occasionally have something sweet or tasty. But at this stage, it's no temptation to me. It's not like having a, a Pringle. Yeah. Now, yeah. I would broadly agree with all of that growth. I'll just move this yeah. a little. Um, you must continue deploying the diet in the first weeks and months, you're an enthusiast because the weight falls off on low yeah. carb. For me, essentially, in, in eight to nine weeks, I lost around 35 pounds. Yeah. And people were just shocked who hadn't seen me in weeks. So you're full of enthusiasm. You're very adherent to the diet. Yeah. And, and it's fantastic. But exactly as you say, over time, you can slip unconsciously. And even, shall we say, we talked about bias earlier, you can kind of fool yourself. You're still mostly doing it. But you've got to be really careful that you really are. The emotion I had when I reached the weight was disappointment. I said, this has been terribly easy. It has been terribly easy. I didn't have to fight hunger. And I have learned to eat as much as my body says to have. Some days I eat a colossal amount of food and I find inevitably in the next couple of days, I'm just not hungry. And uh, I might have put on two, three pounds and a lot of it's probably fluid. It just falls off me. So I listen to the body. I don't I don't consciously um, make myself hungry at all. I don't fast. I know some people fast. My son fasts. Uh, he doesn't have any breakfast, but I don't fast. But here I am. It works. But you are remaining fully adherent, essentially. I am. That's, now, mm. there was a big side effect that I had. I was very prone to depression for years. Um, very prone to depression, like a be de semi-depressed most of the time and we get badly depressed periodically. And I never went in any treatment for it. I learned how to cope with it with exercise and blah, blah, blah. But I haven't been depressed since I went low carb. Now, I didn't have that effect when I quit sugar. Uh, because I was eating uh, eating starch. So I don't know whether it's weight loss, which is supposed to reduce chronic inflammation of the brain, or is it uh, a more even uh, blood sugar? My blood sugars are very, very even. My blood sugar would seldom go to 120 milligrams. Um, and it is mostly, it's pretty, pretty good. Or is it a change in my microbiome? Because your microbiome is going to change depending on what you eat. Now, what do I eat? I eat everything except what's bad. So I eat various veg, I eat, and eat peas, I eat carrots, um, I eat all kinds of meat, I eat yogurt, cheese, um, all that stuff that I actually really like. For breakfast this morning now, I had my usual three egg omelette with about 40 grams of cheddar cheese in it and some white pudding. Mm. And it's grand. And it's very cheap. People think low carb is expensive. If you know what you're doing, it's very cheap. That's a great point. And yeah. I have repeatedly had to get in this argument or discussion, yeah. shall we say. But exactly, because eggs were perceived as unhealthy, which, by the way, was one of the biggest disgraces oh, it's terrible. in human history that you could vilify an egg, which is almost the perfect the Perfect food. food, yeah, yeah. Perfect. But let's put that aside for the moment. The eggs, because they were perceived as not so healthy or maybe one a day or less, the cost is actually very reasonable. Yeah. And the amount of protein and nutrients and choline and everything yeah. else is incredibly good for, for the cost. 
And the dietary satisfaction is fantastic. Superb. And yeah. appetite satisfaction following a few eggs, you know, yeah. you're good for the day. Yeah. It's incredible. The other thing is the, the beef. In Ireland, it's all pretty much grass-fed. Yeah. But I noticed that it's it's 10 euro, or say $12, uh, for a kilogram, or two pounds, of the premium ground yeah. beef. The yeah. good stuff. But look in the back. The good stuff is only good because it's very low fat. Yeah. Yeah. And the cheap stuff, five dollars for two pounds. Yeah. Is around twenty percent fat rather than six. It's high fat and it's called the bad stuff, but it's the best stuff. It's also the t- the tastiest, and you oh. don't have to use any eggs or anything in your hamburgers if you use the eighteen percent because the fat sticks it together. We use that. It, Another thing that's for nothing are things like chicken thighs or chicken chicken wings, chicken thighs. Um you can get this thing in uh Muslos is what they are in Spain. My wife makes this dish in Spain where you get chicken thighs. You open them out, uh, complete with skin, fry them, and you make a casserole of it. It's completely divine. And skin included, of course. And skin included. And for nothing. Like you'd have a meal for two for four euro. Yes. And and equally, if you go into the major stores in Ireland, and I presume it's not too much different in America, you know, chicken cuts, you know, they're really inexpensive. Now, there might be some question, I suppose, we have to acknowledge in America, particularly with, you know, corn adulteration, maybe corn fed, maybe, yeah. you know, these antibiotics. And, you know, there is some question mark around the mass factory produced animals. The point usually made, though, and I know I think Eric Westman, made, Dr. Eric Westman makes this point that, you know, if people can switch to a healthier, low carb, even if they're eating not the best quality of meats, They've still come a long way from how bad they were. Yeah, it's still a move forward. Yeah, Mm. and a funny thing about uh, carbs, I can honestly say I I think people may be different in this regard. I could never get dietary satisfaction from carbs. I I was never satisfied from eating carbs. I had a low fat diet for years. I had a low fat diet such that um, I did eat some chocolate or stuff like that and desserts, but I had no fat in my meat. Didn't eat a lot of meat. I had no eggs. I had no cheese for 30 years. And cheese, actually, uh, if you think that cholesterol is important, which it probably is in some people in certain circumstances, cheese usually will lower your cholesterol. Um, this is something that was published maybe 30 years ago by Moorfield um, Dairy Research Institute, which is near Fermoy in County Cork. And nobody believed it. And recently, people in Dublin have um, repeated the same kind of experiment. And cheese improves your improves your lipids, such as they be. Yeah, I saw that came out in the web yeah. around a week ago, and seems like a pretty solid study. And they got an actual lowering. Now, to be honest, for me, I think for some people it might go up a bit, yeah. for some people go down a bit. And whether any of it means anything is the, the oh, big of course. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, but, yeah. it's it's nice to see another misconception. And the the chaps in uh, in Gascony eat tons of cheese. In fact, I was cycling in France all oh, last year. I've done a lot of cycling in France, but I was cycling in France last year, and I noticed that there's a great treat available in most of their supermarkets. You can buy slices of all kinds of terrine. You can buy deer terrine, rabbit terrine, uh, completely divine, fantastically tasty, uh, great for cycle touring. 
Uh, yeah, terrine, and for people who are not aware of what it is, it's very a very coarse pate. Yeah, really, and I love terrine. Yeah, and I, when I'm in France or Spain, I I go for it crazy. Yeah, uh, because the smooth pates, I I eat them because it gives me liver and nutrient density, yeah. and it's great. I don't enjoy them massively, but terrines are gorgeous. Yeah, I love terrines. They're fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. go go get them, guys. Um, we might circle now around to some familiar territory for you. You've been uh, fixated somewhat fixated about the process of atherosclerosis and as a consultant pathologist for a whole lifetime career you've been very close to the the rock face i've seen a lot of it Mm. and the thing that interested me about atherosclerosis is i did not believe the explanations for it uh, because the evidence was very very poor there were kind of presumptions now you can't doubt the importance uh, etiologically of hypertension in atherosclerosis that's a given, right? If you have very high blood pressure, you're going to get a degree of atheroma from it. There are people who think that there are two, a lot of doctors think that there are two sets of people in the population, people who have no arterial disease and people who have arterial disease. Believe you me, most people have some arterial disease, even though it might be trivial. And some people are very unlucky. I saw a man die once of... um, intestinal failure because he had one plaque of atheroma at the origin of his superior mesenteric artery and nothing anywhere else because I was really so you can be unlucky where you have it or you could have tons of it and not die of it and you'd quite commonly do post-mortem on a very old man and find that his coronary arteries are like bones they're so calcified and yet he has died of something else like um I must tell you just a funny story (laughs) um a term that was used for bronchopneumonia, which is a common kind of a terminal event in old people. Uh, it used to be called the old man's friend. And I remember um, a, f- a colleague of mine was teaching on a postmortem and the patient had died of bronchopneumonia. And he had this student who was very zany, uh, very different, uh, shall we say slightly mad. And he said, now, this man died of uh, what's called the old man friend. You see what's there in his lung. What can you see? And no, nothing. I can't see anything, he says. Well, look, it's kind of a bit solid and so on. He says, the old man's friend, what do you think it might be? Is it his dog, said the student. <laughs> <laughs> these, you can't write these things when they happen. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, I'm sure that student grew up and, and went on to some good things later. <laughs> no, he, he, oh. le- he left medicine. They realized that he wasn't quite right. Ah, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he did something more artistic. Uh, yes, that's right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, that's... And we were on the top... Oh, of course, of atherosclerosis. So we've got this massive heterogeneity, if you yeah. will, where um, I love that example of, of the guy with the one big yeah. atheroma. And actually, Dr. Scott Murray has some amazing cases similarly yeah. um, in the UK. And one he had was he had a twin, a, a homozygous true twin, uh, who in maybe late 40s, but I, I can't remember, uh, had a um, an angiogram. And there was one specific area at a branch point in an artery where there was like that, there was a very significant narrowing and an issue. And they went ahead and they may have stented it or whatever. But they were lucky in that six months later, his twin brother, I think he lived in Germany, was over in England. They communicated and this twin brother, brother agreed to go and have an angiogram in the name of science and perhaps in the name of checking himself. And he had the same thing. 
he had the same yeah. atheroma. Now, I chatted to Scott about this and asked about their biometrics. Um, and of course, they were both hypertriglyceridemia. Uh, so it wasn't that it was just a defect, yeah. but it was a weak area in both these yeah, identical yeah. twins. It was a, it was a, um, a physical abnormality that became atheromatous. Mm. If you have an abnormal angle or something like that, you can get um, atheroma. And so you can be born with a physical defect that predisposes you to atheroma in a particular place. And you get turbulence. Turbulence would be behind it. Yeah, because when you've got nice shear yeah. in, in straight sections of the artery, very few atheroma. Yeah. But in the junctions, then the endothelial cells are all arranged differently. And the nitric oxide release, I think, can be impaired. Yeah. And all these other factors come together. But even if you have all these weak points, and most people do have yeah. many of them, uh, some people may get really bad atherosclerosis. Some people have almost none. And that's environment mostly, yeah. I guess. One example might be, I mean, I'm just guessing here, but you got a zero calcification score at yeah. the age of? 65. 65. Yeah. Now that's that's pretty, does not uh, it, it amazed me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, it is interesting because you had genetics disposing towards uh, putting on weight. Yeah. And you would have had, you know, excessive insulin and other things yeah. during those decades where you're carrying the belly. You did offset, though, probably quite a bit of the damaging effect with yeah. your massive cycling. Yeah, that's one thing. Another thing that I think is that uh, until relatively recently, my blood pressure would always be very low. Like my standard blood pressure would be 105 over 60. Uh, when I went on a low carb diet, I found that my blood pressure was more variable. And I identified eventually by an experimentation that if I overdid salt, it, it uh, would rise. So I'm salt sensitive. But I'm not really hypertensive. So my blood pressure this morning, which I took just for your information, is 109 over 60. Excellent. Uh, yeah, so that's fine. But if I swilled back salt, which mightn't affect other people, it affects me. My blood pressure will rise. But the key question is, if it goes up to 126 over whatever, 82, yeah. it doesn't really matter. No, or are you talking I'm talking about serious blood pressure. I've had mm. uh, blood pressure of 180 consuming a lot of salt. And mm. two days later, gone by just not eating salt. So what I do now is I, I eat uh, a certain amount of food which has salt in it, like uh, I'd eat some salami, etc. But I don't add salt to anything. And that controls it. Right. And I think the literature in general would support that salt-sensitive hypertensives, yeah. uh, you know, uh, salt is a factor, but, but probably... A lot of people, it's not really a factor. Yeah, in yeah. fact, low salt might be an issue. So like many things, I suppose, in science and nature, there's kind of a a hyperbolic kind of relate. Like very high can be bad for some. Yeah. Very low can be bad for others. So there is some variability. Oh, there is, of course. And it's yeah. genetic. They've identified the gene uh, that's involved in, I can't remember the explanation, but I've looked it up. 15% of people have a gene which uh, predisposes them to develop hypertension on a high salt input but not on a normal salt input like on seven grams of salt a day i wouldn't get my blood pressure would be normal oh that's quite high though yeah it is oh but you're you're uh, this is great for the for the listener though yeah, yeah. you're you're talking super high because the guideline is to stay down around three grams yeah at seven you're okay which yeah. is massive salt not really not mm. not really because i cycle yeah so true. if you exercise a lot you lose a lot of salt yeah true yeah. so you've got this interesting kind of uh 
a balance. There's a balance. I'll tell you now. Uh, you're making a more you're making a more complex balance because you're going way over the guidelines, yeah. and yet maintaining okay blood pressure. But given that you're doing a lot of cycling and that's losing the salt, yeah. so this is getting a bit of complex. And then when you go super, super high and overshoot completely, yeah. you get the hypertension response. Y- yeah, but but the other question is to go another level. Yeah, is your hypertension through that mechanism as problematic as someone who has hypertension because they're hyperinsulinemic, eating a sad diet, and they've got everything gone to well, hell? They have it all the time. Whereas mm. I would only have it if I overdid salt. And I discovered that through experimentation by deliberately consuming salt and see what happens. Transient. And, yeah, yeah. You have transient yeah. hypertension, which is not av- averaged over time. It's not real hypertension in, yes. in that instance. But if I were in the habit, for instance, of if, if I was in a standard American diet and putting salt on my food and eating salty food, I reckon I'd be in trouble because for years I was eating close to the standard American diet, but I was using no salt whatsoever. I didn't add salt to an egg or well, I ate almost no eggs anyway, but I didn't add salt to anything for at least 25 years, which and my blood pressure was always low. But my dad, who died at the age of 96, died suddenly, actually, at the age of 96. He had a friend, which was a good move. (laughs) But um, he uh, always had a very low blood pressure. His normal blood pressure was under 100 systolic right into his 90s wow yeah that's amazing for a modern western male yeah i think it's it's a gene so either the genetics are enabling you to tolerate to an extent this poor diet and not go into the dysfunction of hypertension which is basically an epidemic in the west Uh, the katavans tsunami samayan don't have it yeah um or let me just parse this out Either you're protected from all of the dysfunction from these bad diets and you don't develop hypertension or you just don't develop the hypertension piece. Exactly. Now, name me an animal. Name me an animal who has this mutation. I'm not sure, actually. The bear. The bear gets metabolic syndrome, uh, complete metabolic syndrome when he hibernates, but he doesn't get hypertension because he has a mutated gene. You're saying you're a bear. I'm a bear. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Bear-faced cheek. <laughs> bear-faced bear science this is. Yeah. So that is, you, now you've rung a bell. I do yeah. remember this. Yeah. The bear gets uh, into the metabolic syndrome in the late yeah. autumn or whatever, builds all the fat. In fairness, is not even an insulin-sensitive obese because actually does develop uh, the hyperinsulin, but not the hypertension, yeah. which is a, a massive sign of dysfunctional uh, process they've de- they've identified the mutation i remember mm. reading this because um fundamentally all these fat people you see walking around the place are hibernating mm. well they've got a hibernation reaction essentially and what turns on a hibernation reaction two things maltose which you get from beer and fructose uh, in excess in calorie excess fructose does it and fructose uh, causes a production of uric acid. And I think uric acid is the actual trigger. It is the um, the the, th- the thing that signals the body to start storing fat like hell. Right. Lustig, I think, went through yeah, some yeah. of this in some of his lectures. Yeah. yeah. And then uric acid also predisposes to gout, yeah. kind of a sugar-related disease, and, and many other negative things. I think it's been deemed by the guy who did it, who's an American professor, um, the obesity trigger, uric mm-hmm. acid. 
Right, okay, yeah. yeah but it's turned on by fructose. Right, and that goes down to ATP and the way that yeah. fructose is processed and all. It, it, the jury is still being debated on on the sugar in general. If you're eating a, a low-carb, very healthy, nutrient-dense yeah. diet, you can probably have quite a bit of fructose without kicking in any negative processes. You, yeah, yeah. And in fact, I only found out relatively recently, and it was interesting, we always think of the fructose all has to go to the liver and it can't be taken by the cells as glucose does. But relatively recently, a paper came out which explains that in normal fructose intake in, in reasonably healthy people, uh, the gut actually converts a lot of fructose to glucose. I read that somewhere too. Yeah. yeah. So, which is interesting. There's always new data coming out, even if you think you have some things down pat. Yeah. Uh, and even in the body, of course, in the liver, you can switch the uh, fructose to three carbon glucose. And if you're not high on glucose intake in a healthy diet, a lot of the fructose just becomes some glucose. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there's all these myriad dependencies. Speaking of dependencies and context, if we get back to atherosclerosis, we've got, of course, the LDL theory. Yeah. And, and you know, mainly particle-based now. It used to be LDL-C concentration. It's mostly now, well, it's the particle yeah. count being higher. And or, that's fine. As they say in Dublin, the particles. The particles. <laughs> yeah. The, often the effing particles. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, usually, in fact. So we've got the particles being higher. And interestingly, I've been a, a person who quite publicly has questioned aspects of the cholesterol hypothesis, uh, as have you yeah. and, and many other people. But I will hand, or I have from all my research... An awareness that if more particles get trapped in the intima, they are part of the inflammatory cascade yes, that yeah. leads to atheroma. They are part of it. So in a sense, it is true that the particles of LDL are part of the cause. Yeah. The question is the dependency and the context. So in engineering, uh, my analogy, which is quite trite, is the aircraft. So the aircraft a rudder uh, gyro or, or a rudder actuator breaks. The rudder goes hard right. The pilot can't control it. The plane crashes, doesn't completely explode, but the fuel goes on fire. And the people would have survived, a lot of them, but because of the fuel, they're all burned to death. It's a tragedy. Now, obviously, the root cause there is not the fuel. Yeah. It was the rudder. But there's a sense with the cholesterol hypothesis that People want to call it cause when it's an interacting factor. It's, with, a, it's an amplifier. It's what it is. Is one way of looking yeah, at yeah. it. Yeah. And we used to call them interactional variables. Yeah. And the weaker engineers would get kind of uh, fall in love with an interactional variable. But the the more experienced guys would know, well, yes, when it's higher, things are worse. But yeah. that's not the cause that we can address that's most close to the real causal gene. Well, one one would imagine. Now, I'm I'm not an expert on statistics or or that. My attitude towards medical statistics is ask somebody who's really good at it, because he'll know. But one would imagine that were LDL to be the primary cause of atheroma, that the lifelong level of LDL or even the more recent level of LDL would line up with coronary artery calcium scan results or post-mortem um, evidence of atheroma, but it doesn't. And some people say, oh, well, it's, it, that's because it's a lifelong thing. Well, they have lifelong uh, LDLs in a lot of people with familial hypercholesterolemia, and in them, the, the extent or otherwise of atheroma does not line up with their uh, LDL cholesterol either. So you'd say, well, what does line up with it? Well, what does line up with it is... Um, 
proxies of insulin resistance, like triglycerides over HDL, or whatever you want to do, or measure the insulin resistance, they line up. So that would suggest to somebody who didn't have a bias that maybe the insulin resistance is the primary cause. It's what's facilitating the atheromatous effect of LDL. And that when you take out the insulin resistance, then the incidence of heart disease falls. So you would say, is there data on this? There's buckets of data on it. If you read things like the Quebec Heart Study, Framingham, all of it, all of it shows this, but people don't want to see it. All of it shows that if you have um, low markers of insulin resistance, then you are very much protected against heart disease. Yeah, it's it's a more a far more dominant driver. Yeah. So if you're fifty or sixty percent higher in in LDL or particle counts, there's a slightly higher, yeah. you know, incidence. But the insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, is probably important to note that it's you can be insulin resistant in a physiological way because you're eating a very low carb diet. Yeah. That's not pathological. No, it's not. It's pathological exactly when when you're hyperinsulinemic and insulin resistant peripherally together. It's yeah. uh, Dr. Kraft said uh, hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance, they are not combatants, they are one and the same. And he meant for, for pathological states, yeah. you have the two as two sides of a coin. But it's a much more dominant driver, and we haven't even gotten into many other drivers besides cholesterol. But one, one, one of the weaknesses uh, in, the, in the knowledge in general of doctors in this area is they don't realize that uh, when you diagnose somebody as diabetes, that's late diabetes. They're diabetic for maybe 20 years beforehand if you use tests of sufficient sensitivity to show it. And it's probable that in America and places like California anyway, that 50% of people uh, are diabetic. And you would include people who have um, so-called pre-diabetes. That is, diabe that is diabe diabetes in its effect on the kidneys in its effect on the other organs heart disease etc exactly and the actually the figure the latest cdc figures i got for over 45s yeah. uh, american adults and that's where most heart attacks occur let's be honest over 45s it's technically 64 percent of all america over 45 years old adults are pre-diabetic or diabetic, yeah. which you correctly say is all diabetic. It is all diabetes. And then there's there's some more who do not fulfill the criteria of pre-diabetes, but if you measured insulin, you get more. So yeah, maybe yeah. it's 70 or 80. Yeah, yeah, it God is. God knows. It is, but I mean, this is a giant iceberg. Mm. Yeah. And there's very little of it over water. <laughs> it, there's a lovely diagram of metabolic insulin resistance yeah. syndrome with an iceberg, and it shows yeah. all of what's going on under, underneath. So this is a huge driver, um, and there are other drivers we probably won't get into that if you're low on critical elements yeah, like magnesium, vitamin D and, that. Vitamin D and yeah. nitric oxide. But recently I've been looking a little deeper, uh, coming up now I'm going to be giving talks with this content, into why cholesterol is a problem. And I knew, as we said at the start, if you have more particles, technically more will get into the arterial wall. Yeah. To some extent, we don't know, but more will get in. And more in there, if you have an issue, is going to give you more of the issue. So it's not rocket science. Yeah. So we agree in principle. However, I wondered about what mediates or, or governs 
how many get from your blood into your arterial wall and how many get stuck and become oxidized and inf- and you get the the catastrophic cascade into atherosclerosis i wondered what what decides how many get in besides the number in your blood because you rightly said we know there are populations with higher numbers than americans with no heart disease you know in their yeah. blood and we know there's the opposite so we know there's a, there's a problem and what i found out i discovered was the glycocalyx yeah is an incredible structure that has a sieving effect on the inside wall of your artery. The endothelial cells transfer cholesterol particles across them through a very governed process and and also leaks between the endothelial cells can transfer. And there is science on all of this going back 30 years. And when you get inside the artery wall, your proteoglycans that trap the particles and can to a greater or lesser extent cause them to get oxidized the activity and the affinity for those proteoglycans to trap the ldls depends on whether you're a diabetic or not diabetic and what your blood's like whether you have small dense particles or not so there's three layers of what controls how the particles may come in and may cause a problem and all of these are independent of your particle count and they're all unsurprisingly there's science on all of this connected to hyperglycemia hyperinsulinemia all of the root causes we talk about it appears sit and govern how leaky all those junctions are yeah i went on in a rant there but it just stuns me that even the particle ldl theory is utterly governed within the theory itself of them getting into the wall is governed by by all the things we talk about yeah yeah, yeah. Yudkin in his book stressed that if anything he said uh, relates to myocardial infarction in tests, it's the blood serum insulin level. He established that, and that's 1970s. All the patients who got uh, myocardial infarctions, as far as he was concerned, had raised insulin levels. Yeah, exactly. And we're we're hardly measuring insulin, so it's yeah. amazing he even ha- was able to get that data. Yeah. But Ryudkin was a truly great, he was great, a brilliant, incredible scientist. person. Yeah. yeah, and so decent as well. Unlike his opponent, yeah. Ansel Keys, but we we won't go down that one. Um, but so Yudkin observed that. Also, the Euroaspire study in 2015 was published, and they looked closely at all of the CAD or coronary artery disease victims across Europe ages 18 up to 80 patients and 25 countries so that's a perfect engineering poll you unbiased grab everyone who has the problem and they look close at their glucose not even their insulin and it turned out over 70 percent had glucose dysregulation so they were essentially diabetic yeah over 70 percent and they didn't even measure insulin and the most recent euro aspire from a, a colleague in the uk is coming out for the uk same thing absolute diabetes in 65 percent yeah. plus i mean wow yeah it's, just, it's incredible well, we were right <laughs> we was we, right man so we yeah. just slap ourselves in the back and go yeah. home yeah well no we continue getting the message out there yeah so it is multifactorial atherosclerosis but even in that brief discussion there's a whole array of hugely important drivers and root causes and then kind of on the side interacting with with these drivers is the cholesterol reality the particle reality yeah. so you don't need to deny it you just need to say it's so peripheral yeah that that why would why would you really focus on that when you got i've always said in on twitter or whatever uh i don't believe that um ldl cholesterol 
is insignificant, but I think it, that there's a much bigger um, driver, which is insulin resistant. That's always been my stance. Looking at the data, one of the things you learn from, I mean, I've made oh, 100 diagnoses a day for 30 years. One of the things you learn is you get a kind of gut feeling about diagnosis. And it's usually pretty good. Like you can, I'll give you an instance of um, a case. I got um, a liver biopsy from a lady and she had some kind of a lesion on her liver and there was lymphoid tissue in it. And I said, gosh, this is difficult. So I sent it uh, to Dublin. And I sent it around to Ireland. About seven pathologists saw it. They all thought it was lymphoma. And uh, the consultant says, to, um, the consultant in charge of the patient says, what do you think? I said, I think it's reactive. It looks like lymphoma, but I think it's not. But seven people say it's it's lymphoma. We'll watch her, he says. Nothing ever happened to her. That's gut. And I use my gut a lot. Now, gut can be wrong, but it's more often right. It's 95% right. Absolutely. It depends yeah. on the person who's using the gut and how yeah. truly experienced they are, of course. Yeah. Uh, so you can't. You can't universally say trust your gut because some people's gut is completely up their ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, have to let that literally. in. You have to let that in. Yes. I knew what I was yeah. saying there. Ivor has a part time career as a proctologist. <laughs> there you are. I'll get my clyster pipes out. Actually, there's clyster pipes. That's an unusual reference. Are you familiar? What are clyster pipes? I, I did uh, Othello when I was very young, uh, the play, and we studied it. And clyster pipes are ancient proctologists' instruments. And actually, Iago in the play refers to another character who's who's handling an object where this guy, Iago, has framed him. He's handling an object that will make another person think that he's involved with his oh, wife. Yeah. So he says, see how he plays with the handkerchief, I think it was. Uh, would they were clyster pipes for his sake? In other words, he's handling something that's going to be big trouble for him. Yeah. But, but Shakespeare, <laughs> of course, used these clyster. I believe yeah. they had a little satchel and they they were able to put these probes in the rectum and, and check things out. Right? Yeah. Clyster pipes. So anyway, that's an aside. That's yeah, a big Remind aside. me to never have that examination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think proctology, no, it wouldn't be for me. Uh, but we were you were giving actually these stories of diagnosis, and I, I know we're going a bit off from atherosclerosis, but we'll circle back in a moment. But examples of those over your massive career of making calls where others, hugely experienced, yeah. made incorrect calls. I think you had one which involved a senior guy who was getting a diagnosis or a very wealthy. Oh, yes. Um, well, I worked for Basil Morrison, who was subsequently Sir Basil Morrison, a fantastic pathologist, rated... Um, the world's best gastrointestinal pathologist who worked in St. Mark's Hospital in, in London, which is purely large bowel hospital. It's now part of the um, the Harrow uh, unit. But he had written, he had published only 120 papers in his career, but they were all magnificent. And he had the ability to look at something uh, as if nobody else had looked at it before and, and get a sort of independent view of it. But one day he called me and he says, there's a, a biopsy here to see from the professor of pathology in New York on a very well-to-do um, uh, VIP of his rectum. And there's the letter. So it said, dear Basil, please look at this. It's very unusual, but I think this is carcinoma. So he showed it to me and he says, what do you think of it? And, uh, 
I said it's not carcinoma, it's squamous metaplasia, which is where the, the glandular tissue becomes squamous tissue and it looks very like cancer. He says, are you, he says, going to disagree with the professor of pathology in New York? I said, I sure am, he says. <laughs> he says, um, he won't like it, he says, but I like it and I'm sure the patient will like it <laughs> because <laughs> I was right. So you just have to, you have to learn to, um, to call stuff. You can be wrong too. You can be wrong, but many times you're right. If, if your gut says something isn't right, you're right. And something isn't right. Absolutely. And again, pen, depending on, on in the context of your experience and your skill yeah. and your talent and all those things. Uh, pathology is interesting because usually one would think when you've got a slide and a sample, yeah. you look at it. Oh, that's a, a, a carcinoma. That's a cancerous cell. Or, and, and no, this one has no cells, but it's not. There's a huge interpretation. There's interpretation. Visual interpretation. There's also another matter involved, which is, for instance, um, if a pathologist gets a cervical smear and examines it really, really carefully, they can show using instrumentation that when he's examined it as carefully as he can examine, as he has examined it, he's only seen 11% of the cells, the way the brain works. So when you flick your eyes, the brain doesn't register what you see between the flick and the end of the flick. Uh, now, it's very difficult to overcome this in the microscope because of the design of the microscope. But this is a phenomenon that's known to fighter pilots. And the motto they have, fighter pilots have, is use your head. No, move your head or you're dead. Because if a fighter pilot is flicking his eyes from side to side, he doesn't see between the flicks. So they don't do that. They move their head. But you can't do that with a microscope because you, the microscope would have to move with your head and you just can't do it. So... That's well, an interesting thing. It's it physiology. is. And of course it is. Yeah. If you try to move your eye across a wall, it moves in jumps with yeah. dead zones. Yeah. yeah. But we as hunters, uh, as we evolved, our eye can track a moving target. That's right. The, the, so the, it's the fundamental. Mo the movement attracts, attracts you. Like if you look at, down at a pavement and there are ants on it, even though you can't see anything out of the corner of your eye, if it's moving, you can see thousands of moving ants. If they all stopped moving, you wouldn't see them. And if you look at an ant, your eye can track that ant wherever he goes yeah. continuously and smoothly. Yeah. But if you try and move your eye across the surface, it will yeah. only go on these discrete digital yeah. jumps. Yeah, that's what that's what happens. Mm. That's that's a problem. In another problem too is that what your brain sees is not exactly what your eye sees because your eye, your uh, uh, visual system tries to simplify what you're looking at. So you may flick over some cells and the brain fills them in from the surrounding area so you don't see them at all. This is what a problem you're up against. We, we know this from science that it's been done on vision. So doctors get condemned for missing something. But the degree of miss uh, is very reproducible. Uh, for instance, an area of difficulty reading barium um, enemas, barium enemas, where you do an X-ray of, of the gut using uh, contrast, is the sigmoid colon, which is a twisted bit of colon above the rectum. And it's easy to miss something there. And they've got top, top radiologists to look at X-rays of sigmoid colons, and they miss a third of them in the sigmoid colon. Where third of them where you can point, look, that there it is. And they say, oh, gosh, yes, they missed third. If you get two radiologists looking at it, they miss 15%, the two of them. 
So you'll never reach perfection on that. Right. Yeah, yeah. There, there is some natural inborn error. There's a natural uh, mm. error rate. There's a natural error rate in everything. So all you can do with that really is is redundancy. Yeah. That you do multiple layers. But this, then- is, this is why, for instance, in screening, they, they, they do repeats. Mm. And one of the ironies of, I know we're straying from it at the moment, but one of the ironies of cervical screening is that uh, because if a cancer is, there's an actual cancer in the cervix, it all kind of swells up, that you get fewer cells in the malignant ones than you do in the benign ones. Ah, oh, so that's that's kind of they kind of hide, yeah. They hide, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not they haven't evolved to hide. It's just a bit of luck for the yeah, cancer yeah, and bad just, luck for the person. Yes, and I think when you when you are trying to register something as well, it will depend on on your own personal frame of mind or pattern recognition. Totally, I think. yeah. And yeah. also, if you know that the person has cancer, you will find the cells. That actually, I I just have an analogy popped into my head. We had an enormous issue many years ago oh, yeah. in the high volume manufacturing where I was, and, and I had to lead it for my sins, and it it, it cost essentially a couple of hundred million dollars. So it was, yeah. one, it was the biggest ever, uh, and we we fixed it. We root caused it. But there was a defect of a delamination, which you could only see on the highest power optical scopes. And you had to use diffraction lenses yeah. to create a diffraction pattern where you could see the lamina. And there was only one microscope setup that, that could do it. It had been missed for six or 12 months because all the high powered scopes were not set up. Yeah. But the thing was, when I got into that issue, it was so huge. The responsibility was so huge. I became ultra focused on seeing these defects. And I found that the slightest glance and I would see it but because I was obsessed. I mean, yeah. My whole brain was wired yeah, to yeah. see these defects. You, you'd programmed yourself to see it. I think so. Yeah. It, unwittingly, you were just programmed because there was so much at stake. Yeah. Uh, but you can't, of course, be able to be like that for every myriad different thing that you're looking at as a pathologist. You go insane. So it's maybe only specific special things where you can become hyper, almost survival obsessed. Yeah and maybe enhance your ability to catch things. Sometimes it's luck. When, when mm. the first cases of uh, Legionnaire's disease appeared in America, they took all these bacteriological samples and they spent ages looking at them, loads of people, and they saw nothing. And one of the pathologists who'd been looking at them came in one night and he just took one slide, put it down, and there were the bugs. First look. Luck. Luck. That's mm. what it was. And once they are observed, then, then you'll find the state of the art, then yeah. you find them. Then you'll find them. Actually, Legionnaires, and again, we're going rolling all over the yeah. place here, but a couple of months ago, a guy died in the UK. Yeah. And the Legionnaires, of course, is if you've got moisture in, in vapor phase, yeah. not pure liquid, uh, tiny droplets, um, you get these particular type of bacteria with warmth and, yeah. and that, and you inhale them. I don't think you can't drink them. You no, have no, to no. inhale them. Yeah. This guy in England had a hose looped up on his veranda. And it had got very hot and warm over the weeks in the summer. The temperature of the water went up and the particular bugs were in it. Yeah. And what did he do? Unfortunately, instead of pouring liquid flow into his plants, he, he turned the spray nozzle. Yeah. And, and he, he killed himself. Yeah. Just yeah. a rolled up hose at the right temperature and I, using a spray nozzle. I think 63 Crazy. degrees kills them. Yeah. They Something need like warmth 60, yeah, yeah. 63 to grow. Degrees. Yeah. 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 Um, but if you had a... Yeah, and that's Celsius, of course. I know somebody who got it, and he was uh, on a respirator for three weeks, and he came out of it. But mm. they have no idea where he got it. They couldn't yeah. explain it. bit like that Veal's disease, I think, where yeah. you can get it from rats, urine yeah, yeah. and stuff. But sometimes people get it, and they're just not sure. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah. So many diseases out there. On a on an interesting note, though, I have a general belief that's built over the years that if you eat a nutrient-dense diet and you do all the correct things yeah. to be healthy, your ability to deal with infections is not magically amazing. It's better. It's, it's yeah. substantially better. Yeah. And I think that's one of the side benefits of a low-carb, high-nutrient-dense, eating lots of really great foods. You've got all your vitamins. You got all yeah. your vitamins, you're getting magnesium, you're getting potassium and chloride, you're getting all what you yeah. need to make the human chemistry set, which is massively complex, you're making it home. And as a result, a nice side benefit is, you know, the common colds and, and other maladies for me over the last five, six years have, have collapsed impressively compared to the previous years. I got a run of them about a year ago, but I've had none for a year. No yeah, I think average, yeah, if yeah. you do a time-based yeah. average over multiple years, rolling average, I see the striking yeah. difference neurological health as well you mentioned at the very start and that is quite striking that when you change your diet yes you lose weight i looked at the time course of events as i lost all that weight though and i noticed that in the first days before i lost any uh, measurable weight yeah. effectively my blood pressure started going down a steep incline yeah and i made the mental note at that time because it was quite dramatic I was generally 140s over 90s. Yeah. Flagged as kind of hypertensive, yeah. significantly always. When I was doing triathlons and massive training, it would drop right back down to 125 over around 80. But I noticed in the first few days when I switched knife edge to low carb before I lost weight, my blood pressure started heading down units a day. Yeah. It was, it was, it was extraordinary. Uh, after a few weeks, I was coming down to triathlon level, even though I was doing no exercise the weight was coming behind the blood pressure collapse. Yeah. And it just shows that it's the fuel going into the system and the metabolic health of the system that is driving a lot of the issues. The weight loss is almost a side thing. You get the yeah. same, you get the same mm. improvement in diabetic um, parameters before you lose weight if you go on a low-carb diet. That's well established by Volek and all of them. Oh, yeah. And yeah. perhaps, I mean, if you just measured the visceral uh, or the ectopic fat in yeah. the organs, sure, that's going to go down rapidly and line up with the improved metabolic yeah. parameters. But the general obesity is it, it's a side order. I mean, it's, you know, it's a bit of a vanity involved. It's nice to have it low, but but healthy adipose tissue all yeah. around you is harmless. Yeah. So we'll have to circle back to atherosclerosis because we were we were at that point of, you know, we've got the factors and we've agreed that overwhelmingly the important factors are kind of outside the cholesterol interacting yeah. one. That said, if someone changed their diet in a significant way and their cholesterol shot up, it would behoove them and be the smart thing. And any engineer would do it is make sure that all of the other markers are all in a good enough place yeah. that you can choose to not worry too much about that cholesterol, but to ignore yeah. a biomarker like cholesterol shooting up would be stupid. So I think that's probably a fair point to make. But but let's say we move then into the process itself and calcification particularly, yeah. which is a later stage of atheroma, but it happens soon enough that it acts as an incredible measure of risk. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. Yeah, well, what you're going to get is you, you, you're going to get some atheroma and some of it will calcify. And there's a rough proportion to how much calcifies. So it's very good. Uh, it's not a perfect, but it's a very good flag for the presence of atheroma if you've got this calcification. Now, there, there are two terms that are used in um, 
calcification where you oughtn't to get it is called ectopic calcification, which means calcification in the wrong place. That is divided into metastatic calcification. And metastatic calcification is what you get if you have an abnormality of calcium metabolism, like you have a parathyroid adenoma or something of that nature. Then what you get is you get calcification in normal tissue. And the other type is called dystrophic calcification. Dystrophic calcification is calcification in abnormal tissue or diseased tissue or scarred tissue. So that's what it represents. It, it really is a reparative thing, a reparative phenomenon, at least in part. It braces the tissue. Um, there is a paradox that statins are thought to increase um, calcification in atheroma but they don't seem to make the the result worse as it were so this could be a somewhat beneficial effect i don't know but it as they say queers the pitch as regards diagnosis and one mustn't have a queered pitch no especially when we're dealing with science and <laughs> yeah, people's right. lives yeah. ideally not but but it is an interesting one and i think i heard the same explanation and i, I don't think there's any really deep mechanistic papers explaining it and I, I wouldn't have had the time to get into them but it's a reasonable enough thing that statins do have a benefit yeah uh, what's debated is the degree of benefit and what's causing it and what's causing it yeah. the pleiotropic versus the cholesterol to be honest we're happy enough in general people in my world that lowering cholesterol particles with statins may not be the main uh, benefit that's seen or yeah. observed uh, but at the same time, as we agreed earlier, if you lower the number of particles and they're an interacting part of the process, you may uh, ameliorate the problem yeah. a little, yeah. which is fine. Also, if you lower the number of particles, there's going to be small, dense and oxidized LDL and problematic LDL. Interestingly, oxidized LDL in the plasma, I've just been studying papers recently, uh, has a dreadfully bad effect on the endothelium. Yeah. And it causes attraction of monocytes and immune, and it, it causes corruption of the internal layers that sieve. Yeah. So, so everything's interconnected. But yeah, the statins may be consolidating calcification and getting a benefit while making the value go up slightly. Yeah. The which th is fine the thing about uh, statins people should realize it's it's information if you like is the number needed to treat if for instance uh you you put all your circumstances into some kind of an algorithm and it tells you you need to treat 222 people with your circumstances to benefit one you may decide i'm not going to have that whereas uh, if the number needs to treat was one in 10 or whatever, then um, it's your decision. But I think the number needs to treat is a very useful bit of information to find out. Now, I, I give you an instance of something that has a huge effect on the outcome of coronary artery disease. If you get somebody who smokes, who's had a coronary, if they quit smoking, they double their chances of long-term survival. Statins won't do that. Yeah, double is a big effect. I remember many, many years ago, I used to smoke a long time ago, and I remember being really impressed by the linkages to mortality. Yeah, uh, primarily through cardiovascular mortality. Yes, correct. You know, lung cancer is a terrible one. It's 25 times the chance if you smoke. But relatively speaking, not a huge amount of people get it. 
But the cardiovascular was amazing. And one thing I noticed that ties in with that is I got the charts. And if you stop smoking, rapidly your cardiovascular excess risk begins to fall away. Yeah. Which makes sense because the smoke is damaging your endothelium, damaging your glycocalyx. It's oxidizing your particles. It's doing stuff that when you stop, you can recover fast. But interestingly, when you stop smoking after a long period, your cancer risk does not drop so fast. No. Which also makes sense because that's more longer term cellular damage. It's very slow. Yeah. Yeah. So I love when these things all fit together beautifully. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I have to say that. (laughs) So the smoking. Uh, Smoking is a big risk factor for heart disease, of course. Um, There was a study actually with calcium scanning and smoking reminds me which was stunning and they had smokers and non-smokers and when they looked at i shouldn't be laughing but it's, this is insane when they looked at the non-smokers with a high calcium score versus the smokers i mean real smokers yeah. of similar age with a zero score the uh, smokers did worse did they no the non-smokers were six and a half times more likely to have a heart attack with a, a thousand score in calcification yeah. scan than the smokers and it actually made me realize something that it's not like i mean the calcium scan is a diagnostic if you yeah. will and smoking is a habit that damages you so they're kind of different but if you scanned all of the smokers and the non-smokers you'd find out the non-smokers who are going to have heart attacks and you'd also find the smokers who are actually probably going to be fine not to say smoking's okay yeah but the calcification scan would actually allow you to or sort the, the weed from the chaff. It, yeah yeah there's a very mm. there are two peoples two uh, peoples who who smoke a lot the french and the japanese and their incidence of heart disease is only marginally increased by smoking unlike us now they don't know why mm, it's something that they're not eating probably what do the French have in common and with the Japanese? They both eat about 70 pounds of sugar uh, per capita per annum, whereas the Americans eat 140. We eat 130. Big difference. I reckon it's the sugar. The, there's a critical amount of sugar. They know, um, looking back historically from when sugar and white flour came to the missions and doctors were there studying the populations, that 70 pounds if you give population 70 pounds plus of sugar per annum for 20 years, they start getting diabetes and heart disease. That's the that's the uh, threshold. There's almost a threshold value. There is a threshold value. Yeah. yeah. So all of your analysis of sugar would really need really accurate sugar figures, yeah. accurate per person and be mindful of a threshold potential effect to properly yeah. analyze. But I think most of the science and sugar we see is, is kind of all over the place. Yeah. And there's probably commercial and, and political historical reasons. There's no it. probably. <laughs> I'm being very Definitely, nice. definitely. <laughs> defo, defo, Ivor, Defo. Defo, and for anyone listening, a Defo is a real Dublin. Dublin word Dublin for word for, for stuff. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I'm going to speak in my nice mid-Atlantic accent. I'm not yeah. going to drop into Dublin. But uh, yeah, the smoking thing, there was also the Scottish the Scottish, there's a massive hazard ratio for smoking versus non-smoking, like 2.8 or something more heart disease if you smoke. 
But like you've just reminded me, the French is only in Lyon, I think, and studied it. It's yeah. only one point three. Yeah. And I think you're right that everything is synergistic and interacting. So if you do everything correct, like say the Catavans, you can do one thing that's questionable yeah. and get away with it. Yeah. And this actually is not a surprise. Because all technical systems, when we have multi-factor complex problems in, in high volume manufacturing, the same kinds of things apply. If you have many factors set to the right place, you may have excellent yield. Um, and you may be able to have one factor you know is a bad factor yeah. in the wrong place. But you're okay because the other good ones carry it. This is not a surprise. And all these causes of heart disease are similar. If you're doing enough things right, you'll get away with one sin yeah. or two sins. Like we say, particle counts and all. If you're doing everything else right, that may not really be an issue at all. Uh, if you're doing quite a few things wrong, rapidly everything starts getting to be a problem. And that's where we have the catastrophic early deaths. Yeah. yeah I don't know. It's a way of looking at things. But it makes sense in the technical it's world. It's right, I'd say. It, 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 it is right. It I almost mean, by definition is right yeah. from the world I came from. But some people seem to struggle to intellectually just grasp it. Yeah. It seems to me quite transparent. And yeah. to you, of course. Yeah. Because you're brilliant too. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll atherosclerosis then. Yeah, it is the world's biggest killer. I think, do you have any uh, stories on atherosclerosis from the... Uh, the pathological side in your experience. You mentioned about this guy yeah. who had the... One plaque. One yeah. plaque. Yeah. And uh, also the inventor of the calcium scanner, uh, Doug Boyd, Professor Doug Boyd, Professor yeah. Physics, he told me a story that, not a story, it's a fact, back in the early days, decades ago, you could have a very small percentage with a zero calcification score who have an event. And, and that was understandable because they could have rapidly progressing atherosclerosis where they have a hadn't a, calcified a rupture, yet hadn't yeah. calcified so rapidly progressing diabetes you might fall before you show up in the scan mind you if you got a scan the day before you have your heart attack you'd probably have seen something usually it's a couple of years before they had the scan yeah. it was a zero it doesn't mean it was the day before your 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 attack and also on the other extreme there's around one percent who get super high calcification and they call them um, ceramic coronary arteries people yeah. and they have no events and they have scores in the thousands and they sound like you're a 90 something year yeah, old yeah, i've seen them they calcify rapidly enough and the reparative process is rapid enough that they actually stave off any events and they get to the end of the line no problem they used to speak um of a phenomenon called monkeberg's medial sclerosis where you got sclerosis um that is fibrosis and then calcification of the media of the artery not the intima where you don't have plaques and uh, i think that's actually a rare uh, a real but a rare enough entity and i think some of them must be that and they don't know what causes it monkeberg's medial sclerosis right i think i heard uh, dr bernstein speak of that or i, I might be mixing it up yeah but it's unusual he had sclerosed arteries with in his legs which gradually came to normal on his diet after years. I remember reading that one of his in his book. He's yeah. an extraordinary man. Incredible. That's Dr. Bernstein. I think the book Richard is Richard Bernstein. Richard Bernstein. He he was an engineer originally. Yeah. And he became a doctor after discovering the crucial nature of being low carb if you're type one diabetic, fixed all his diabetes and in frustration that no one would listen to him, he went into medical school and became a doctor. Of course, he promptly found out no one listened to him then either because his paradigm was against the dogma. 
I think he's. Yeah. Is he eighty-two or three? He and he could be higher. He's still. Uh, he's had diabetes type one for something like fifty-six years or more, which mm. is pr- almost unique uh, mm. to survive that long with type one diabetes. But he has no. Uh, he has some residual um, complications of it, uh, which he was unable to reverse. But they haven't progressed. Mm. So. He has no complications at the moment. His eyes and everything are perfect. Exactly. In his 80s, he's doing YouTube instructional videos. The Diabetes University, if anyone wants to Google it, Bernstein Diabetes University, anyone with type 1, 25 short videos explaining every aspect. Uh, It's an incredible result. brilliant. Resource. Incredible man. Uh, And basically, overwhelmingly, I know there's lots of steps and interventions he recommends, but inherently it's simply low-carb, you know, and, and it's a higher, little higher in protein. And he's the law of small numbers that if you eat big bunches of carb at all, your ability to control the insulin swings afterwards gets nearly impossible. It's an yeah. engineering fundamental mathematical thing. If you bring the carb in your diet right down, you now have a low amplitude and it's really easy to control. And because you're keeping the insulin, exogenous insulin and the glucose both down, you you don't get the pathologies of yeah. type 1 diabetes, essentially. It's incredibly simple in some ways. Yeah, it's yeah. horribly simple. Yeah, frightening. Yeah. It's effing crazy. <laughs> so I just, uh, I'm wondering now with this podcast, I have to make this decision, how loose will I be on dropping F-bombs? Because people who know me in my private life, I'm, I'm probably quite different than I am when I'm on stage or speaking and, and other stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then I'm Irish. We're yeah. all like that. Yeah, we like a, we like a bit of bad language. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes we like to brush up pretty well as well. You know, if we're out there publicly, we we want to put on the good side, as our mammies, our mothers used to say. I want, I want to tell a story now, which is a bad word in it, and it's very Dublin. And uh, I told the person who was referred to by this remark about it, and he said it's straight out of James Joyce. Uh, we had a post-mortem room technician when I was working in Dublin years ago. And he was the right dope, you know, he was the real thing. And he had a coolness with the professor. And uh, the professor sussed this out at the Christmas party. So he bought him four pints of Guinness at the Christmas party. So uh, I meet Ben in January after the party. I said, how do you enjoy the party, Ben? Oh, Jesus, he says, you can say what you like about all here. And he says, but he brought me down four big black points unfucking solicitated. <laughs> Very good. I think Joyce would have written that. <laughs> Joyce, Joyce. Yeah, Joyce was amazing. I, I yeah. tried to read uh, Ulysses, but I just kind of said, I, I don't know. He, yeah. he, he had the biggest vocabulary nearly of any human. And he loved compound words. He used to hyphenate words. Mm. They're all compound. So I have, I have a, um, a liking of writing big, long compound words myself. Mm. I'm no Joyce, though. Ah, well, it's a hard act to follow. And uh, Cormac McCarthy, actually, one of my favorite American yeah. novelists, he does sometimes sentences that go on half a page and sometimes he's terse and he's got this really special style, long, rambling, yeah. descriptive. Great. Uh, Cormac McCarthy, really great author as well and still alive. Great books. So I think we'll probably we'll probably roll to a close because you got to get back down yeah. south, down to the the territories, yes. the boonies. Yes. You know, uh, out in the boonies, uh, maybe uh, down think? down to as a, a chap I worked with in Dublin said years ago, the provinces. 
the provinces yeah yes and as i used to joke with friends from the country or outside of dublin because i'm a dublin guy i used to say you know it's the, the parochial areas yeah, yes, you know, the, the kind of the provinces though i like the that provinces. too um we're going to have of course as is customary after any of these uh, podcasts we're going to have a big bloody ribeye on the charcoal grill yeah. I, I hope that's acceptable to you you're oh god not, i eat everything vegan or no no, no i'm no, not you don't have a, yeah i don't have a vegan cell in my body i yeah. I, I, I suspect all, they're, they're all meat fed <laughs> if you did you'd probably eat them you'd, you'd yeah. self-consume part yeah. of yourself yeah very good thanks a lot girl delighted thank you very much i enjoyed it Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my subscribe button in the middle of the screen, a free viewing of the Widowmaker movie on the far right, and myself and Dr. Gerber's book, Eat Rich, Live Long, on the left. Otherwise, please do subscribe to the audio podcast. Thanks.